Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Johnny Carson once interviewed Betty Davis and asked if she had any advice for young starlets wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. She suggested take Fountain. Fountain Avenue runs parallel to Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in Hollywood and is often used to avoid the heavier traffic. And isn't that what we're all after? A smooth run, no hold-ups, not only in traffic, but also in life. How do people handle those hold-ups, the rejections? How do they create a life in the entertainment capital of the world? How do they identify and express their uniqueness in a place where hundreds of thousands are hoping to do the same? Welcome to Take Fountain. Compelling stories from passionate people who've made it, are making it, in Hollywood. Writers, comedians, actors, filmmakers. I'll talk to anyone with a story to tell. Welcome to Take Fountain, a podcast of passionate people working on their dreams. Compelling stories from Hollywood. Your host, Ella James. So, my guest is... So that is it Cop or Cope? Cop. Cop. Thank heavens. Okay. <laughs> You're wondering if you've been saying it wrong for years. The whole time. Yeah. So, my guest is Savannah Cop, and I first met Savannah, I'd done a... I'd done a uh, comedy show with her friend Amy Argyle, an actor here in Los Angeles who's absolutely brilliant and a comedian, and she said, my roommate is writing or has written a piece and you'd be perfect for it. And I met you and that was the start of a wonderful relationship. Um, But you are a career writer. You're not somebody who's doing something else in writing. You're a career writer and I love your story. So I want to start at the very beginning. What part of California are you from? I'm from Davis, California, right next to Sacramento. So love Lady Bird, obviously. Yes. Um, and yeah, it's a small, small, very liberal town um, in Northern California. Mm-hmm. And where did you go to college? I went to Stanford. Okay. So also Northern California. And I moved to LA a week after graduation, mm-hmm. five years ago. Stanford's got quite a reputation for creating great writers. Is that why you went there? Uh, no, I, I went there, um, I mean, because it was such a good school, but my sister actually went there and, um, graduated right before I started. And, um, yeah, it's actually kind of a crazy story because I, I really wanted to go to UCLA and I got in, but at the time that I was hearing back from colleges. My sister was actually in that hospital for six weeks because she um, she had pneumonia and her lungs shut down. And so she was in the ICU for like six weeks in a coma. And it was during that time that I was, you know, a senior in high school and hearing back from colleges, which seemed like so unimportant <laughs> suddenly, you know. Um, and so I heard back from UCLA and I was like, okay, I guess I'm going there. Amazing. And then I heard back from... Stanford. And I was like, <gasps> I like felt anxiety because I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to decide now, yeah. you know? And, um, my, uh, my parents like were like, oh, you should come tell Allison like in her hospital bed that you got into Stanford because she's going to be excited. And she truly hadn't said a word in like a month. Yeah. And so we went in there and my parents are like, oh, Allison Smith has 
news and she like blinked you know and I was like I got into Stanford and she just like stared at me like like it was the most life I'd seen in so long you know and we were and my parents were like oh do you like it there (coughs) Um, I'm sorry about this it's just it's allergy season yes it really is it's crazy Um, yes so yeah they were they were just like oh do you think she'd like it at Stanford and she was like yes you know and it was like she hadn't said a word in months and we had been so scared for so long and everything so anyway it was it would have been very hard to not choose that school honestly with like her voting for it and like it was a semi-manipulative like situation (laughs) you know yeah um and you know my parent it's also like significantly closer than LA to uh my hometown it's only two hours away so um yeah, but it was kind of like in this very emotional time that mm. I was deciding. And I visited the schools and <coughs> felt like... Um, I know, I'm sorry. I felt like at Stanford, because it's such a smaller school, you don't have, really have to fight for opportunities as much. There just are a ton. Right. Um, and, you know, with and at UCLA, it has amazing opportunities, but so many students and so much competition that when I visited, I was kind of like, okay, I feel like it'll be like an easier time getting yeah. um, a really great experience. Uh, yeah. Had you always wanted to write? Is that what motivated you? Or? No. So I actually majored in psychology um, and I knew I was super interested in writing and from the time I was probably 11, I used to say, oh, the coolest job in the world is writing for TV. But I really didn't know that much about it. And I didn't know anyone who did it. So it felt very, like, I would say it like, oh, that's my dream job. Yeah, yeah, as yeah. Though something I would it was never something do. something far out right, of you. Right. Yep. So when I went to college, my intention was, okay, I'm going to take psychology. So my mom's a therapist and my sister actually also majored in psychology and I knew that was something I was interested in studying. So I said, okay, I'll start taking that and then I'll take a creative writing class because I feel like I might be really into that. So then it was, um, I took that uh, writing classes and realized it was that writing was one of the only times I truly lost track of time. Mm -hmm. Um, Similarly to when I watched TV and I was like, these two things, you know? And so I, it was, you know, the first year or two of college when I decided to really take it seriously and, um, pursue it and learn everything I could about it and really set my goal to, you know, move to LA and work on becoming a writer. How long have you been in LA now? Five years. And we worked on mere players together. Yeah, that was, um, Three, four years? So, uh, that was December 2015. I don't believe that. Yes. Time flies. Um, so the links are going to be in the podcast notes for you to be able to watch yeah. Mere Players and also there will be subsequent listing of another film that Savannah wrote. Yes. Um, you moved across – Had you? I mean, you're a very funny writer. Um had you always wanted to write comedy or did this, where did this, where did the story for Mere Players come from? It's probably the good question. Oh, sure. Okay. So Mere Players, it, as you know, um, and have a wonderful turn in that movie. Um, it's about an actor who uses auditions or sorry, 
an actor who uses blind dates to prepare for his audition. So he goes on different dates as his different characters in preparation for his role. So he really um, uses his love life as, you know, a practice ground um, to see how convincing he can be as a character. And it, the idea for it, I actually wrote it when I was a senior at, um, at Stanford in a, in a screenwriting class. Mm-hmm. But um, the idea for it came a while before I wrote it and I interviewed for um, an internship that I did not get. And after the interview, I felt like, Oh my God, that was so boring. Like that would have been such a good opportunity to play a different person, you know? Right. And I was like, Oh, if I was an actor, I could just, you know, bring upon, you know, go on random interviews as a character to prepare you know, to really figure out if I could do it. Right. Um, Of course, I'm not an actor. So instead, I decided to kind of write about that. And it also was a thing that I would start thinking when I would meet someone and they'd act really strangely. Mm -hmm. I think, oh, maybe they're preparing for a role where they're playing asshole at frat parties. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Lionel Sam is so magical in the role, isn't he? I was the the acting teacher called Elia. Amazing. (laughs) Um, yeah, so, and I feel like it is the kind of thing where it, it feels relevant to people who aren't actors as well. Mm. Um, you know, because we meet manipulative people, we all understand, you know, that even in being, um, a well-intentioned human in the world, there are so many performative aspects of interacting, Mm you know, as yourself and your different self with different people. And, um, you know, you can definitely have those moments where you're like, wait, why am I acting this way? There's the psychologist you know? coming yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Which, which so is wonderful explore, training. Explore yeah. That and it's done very well. Uh, I want to talk about the, let's go back a little bit, the process. Okay. You write something and then you decide you're going to make it and you're looking at a budget. How do you, yeah. how do you come to terms with finding the money to produce a film? Well, we really did it in kind of the opposite direction, which is we didn't have a budget. We just uh, decided we wanted to do it. Um, Amy, so Amy Argyle, as you mentioned, she and I were roommates for my first two years in LA. And um, I told her the premise of this short that I'd written in college. And she thought it was super funny and was like, you know what, we should make it. And then, uh, it was months of us kind of mentioning it and I kept bringing it up and being like, so if we did that, how would we do it? You mm. know, cause I never made a movie. I put up a play at, in college, but theater is a lot different, you know? So, um, so then we would, you know, meet with different people she was friends with and talk to them about if they might be interested and how, you know, how we could do it. And, um, and she was really, you know, knows a lot of creative people she's Mm. worked with before and was like, yes, this is all manageable. And, um, so then after a while we started, I think we cast it basically. We started doing casting and then we did, once it was all cast, we did, um, an Indiegogo to raise money. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, we came up with like a target budget and we didn't make the full amount. And then we made the amount we, raised work 
Um, and for that first movie, I mean, all the actors donated their time, yeah. which was so nice. And for the, you know, our second movie, we were able to pay everyone a little bit. Which was so good. <laughs> it's because, you know, I think for people who live outside of LA, one of the um, things that strikes me about it is that to me, it's like being on a campus. Mm-hmm. It's like everybody's mm-hmm. engaged in the same pursuit. On a yes. campus, it's learning. Here, it's the entertainment industry. And so you start, you meet people in class or or at your work or wherever who are all interested in the same thing. So you accrue people who are directors and writers and lighting people and, um, uh, you know, sound people and and then if you don't know somebody, you'll, you'll find somebody who introduces you to a props person. And, and yes, they can give their time for free or, or no, they can't, but they know somebody who can. And so it becomes this very collaborative process that I also think has been very informative for me in my learning because um, you, you get to work with people and, and learn to get on with them and what's required and, and so on. So the first time you were at a video village, on set uh-huh. in LA as opposed to in Australia or you know wherever it, it all makes sense you know and people want to be helpful they want to be helpful here don't yeah, they yeah definitely I think uh that's one of my favorite things about living here is that people are there are so many creative people and there are so many people who haven't made it yet but are excellent mm. um and I, with both short films like the acting caliber is just so high and um I and also you know actors want to act (laughs) and so I think that they're when you can um you know collaborate and share like a really creative space to for everyone to do their role really well Mm. you know including um you know me like writing something and getting to make it and then um and then also for the actors and the crew. So um, it, it can just be really gratifying for everyone. And mm. you can make something really good because there are so many of us who are just trying to show what we can do. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, the next step of it is, you know, when you make an independent film, a short film like this, mm-hmm. there's got to be a place where people can go and see it. And those places are film festivals. Mm-hmm. But they're not cheap to enter. Right. And yeah. you've also got to be pretty selective about which ones you do enter. So that has yeah. been a learning experience for you as well? For sure, yeah. And um, with Mirror Players, we were in six film festivals. And um, with The Wedding Scene, our second film, we were in over 15. Um, I'm not sure how many it is now. It's a lot. And um, We're doing so well. Yes, so yes. And... Uh, one thing that makes the difference, I think, is that it's half as long. Mm-hmm. It's shorter, and I know film festivals like to be able to pick more mm-hmm. shorter films to yeah. schedule. Um, another thing is that both films are comedies, and there is I tried to submit to festivals that had a comedy category or particularly wanted comedies because mm-hmm. a lot of film festivals have their shorts lean, dark, and artsy-ing uh, twisted, you know, yeah. uh, which this is not. So, yeah, so that's one of the things. And then trying to figure out if you have any personal co- connection to the location or, you know, someone involved with it, 
and try, you know, trying that. But I think you end up submitting to a lot that you don't get into and then a lot that you do get into. And, yeah, and you're looking to, mixture. you're looking to get an audience for your work, right. but you're also looking, are you looking for, in question, Ella, <laughs> are you looking for somebody who will take you on or mentor you or be interested is, sure, is that a thing? Sure. I mean, I I have found that film festivals are best for getting to see your work on the big screen and meet other filmmakers and um, also see how your work is interpreted by audiences, you know, what they laugh at, what they respond to, what they ask about. Um, and, you know, oftentimes there's a Q&A and that has been very fun also to get to kind of share my vision for the film and give a little, you know, backstory to it. Um, and so I feel it more, it can be like a networking opportunity. And I'm sure that the biggest film festivals are more so, you know, can be launching pads, but I've found that ends up more kind of being like a fun experience. It's sometimes something you can add to the accolades of the film, you know, when you're putting it out there yeah. or, you know, and sometimes people will like write reviews or share it amongst, you know, and amongst their, the viewers can share it amongst their friends and stuff like that. So I think it can like garner some attention, mm. but. Professionally, mm -hmm. since you arrived in LA, have you been working in the industry or did you, what did you, what was your first job? Yeah, I've only worked in the industry here. Um, my first job after college was interning at Disney Channel mm -hmm. um, in their series development department. And I had done three unpaid internships in college. Two were in LA over a summer and one was in Paris when I was studying abroad. And those were all at film companies where I was writing coverage and stuff like that. Um, what does coverage mean? So it's when you read scripts or books that are submitted to the company consideration and you write um, a summary and then a recommendation of, you know, your analysis of whether that book or script would be a good product, mm -hmm. um, like movie for the company to make. So it's specific, you know, sometimes you could read something you love and, you know, this company you work out only makes action films. So you might say like, this is excellent, but you know, it involves five feminists. The lead is a female. <laughs> She's three-dimensional. Oh, absolutely. She have I read a gun. so many <laughs> bad scripts. So anyway, I, I only read a couple things I loved, but it was fun to do it because you just read all day. Yeah. Mainly. And then at some of the places you also have to do dumb errands for the people you work for. Yeah. Um, but so I'd done those three unpaid ones and then I really wanted to get a paid one to be able to like move here with a job and in LA things happen so fast that oftentimes you have to already, you know, live here, here to start immediately. So I was um, lucky and planned for it enough that I, you know, got this paid internship with Disney Channel and it was kind of random that it was Disney Channel because it was a program that could have been ABC or ABC Family at the time or um, Disney Channel, and they picked me for Disney Channel. And it's funny because I've worked there for, I still work for them, um, just 
you know, I've had like nine different jobs, but right. um, what's yeah. the current job that you do? So my current job, I work on a show called Raven's Hall, mm-hmm. which is a Disney channel sitcom and starring Raven Simone. It's a spinoff of that's a Raven. And I am the writer's assistant. And then I've also, I'm also um, a freelance writer for them. So I wrote one episode on my own and then I'm co-writing an episode with um, the script coordinator on our show, Jason Hauser. Um, Yeah. So I, as the writer's assistant, basically I type everything that the room full of writers are talking about and I type the scripts and, um, you know, basically keep track of do you record that on a device or do you take shorthand? Uh, How do you no, do it just, just in real time? I just type it okay. in real time, yeah. And my um, computer is hooked, the desktop is like hooked up to two big TVs so everyone can see everything I type and make fun of me if I type something wrong and stuff like that. And I've done this job. This is the, I, I did two seasons on another Disney show as the writer's assistant. And before that, I was a showrunner's assistant. and. Before that, I was a PA, and before that, I was an executive's assistant. So mm. I've done a lot of different types of assistant jobs. This is the best one because I've actually, I'm actually in a very collaborative room where I pitch jokes and stories kind of as much as I want, which is a lot. And so I am treated as a writer in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and then getting the opportunity to write scripts on my own for them and get paid for it is really amazing too. And oftentimes... Uh, people in these positions, you know, everyone knows you want to be a writer, but you don't always get those, like those opportunities. opportunities. So, yes. When, um, when I've spoken to writers in the past, just personally, just anecdotally, and Mm -hmm. they're all like, oh, if only I didn't have to work this job, I could write. And it's like this view of writing that they have that they're tucked away in a cabin somewhere with a roaring Uh log fire, Uh a steaming mug of cocoa. And they're going to pour their heart into their computer and Uh and create this fabulous project. And I suppose it was J.K. Rowling who was the first, um, my first memorable writer who said that she wrote in a cafe Mm -hmm. and she would write whenever she could Mm -hmm. and just to make sure that she she got it down, you know. Um, And other writers who they wake up at four in the morning so they can write for two hours before the kids get up and then they go to work and then they come home and they write for another hour when they get home. Are you still writing your passion projects while you're working full time? Yeah. How do you fit that in? Um, I found that when I'm working in a writer's room, I'm more inspired to write than, you know, the first, I like to say the first two and a half years I was here, um, which is before I was a writer's assistant. I, uh, my brain was atrophying. I was becoming dumber by the moment. And it was very hard for me to concentrate on writing. Um, and I was quite unhappy. You know, mm-hmm. it was hard to write because I felt so unstimulated at work. Um, and then, but now I'm much more stimulated at work. I'm, you know, pitching jokes all day. I'm thinking in that mindset. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to like come home and write and work on my own stuff. And also, you know, there is a sense of the more you're in the room, the more you're like, I can do it. And you have to prove you can do it by having scripts of your own and projects of your own. So yeah, being, you know, feeling like you want to really make it 
helps. The, sure. it, it's interesting that you raise that because, I mean, I know I've, I went through that, that phase where uh-huh. I just thought, what am I doing here? You know, I mean, hundreds of auditions and yeah. you, might get, you might get the booking and then they drop that role yeah. or, or you get the booking and then they decide to give it to someone else or, um, or you, don't, you don't get it. You don't get a call back. You get called in for network with producers, but you still don't get it. Yeah. And, and, and so you're, you're constantly having to work your resilience and find that level. Mm-hmm. But that level of sadness that you're talking about is, is common, uh-huh. right? And what changed for me, I did a class with Risa Bremen Garcia, uh-huh. who's a casting director but also teaches and has a school, and uh, the BGB acting studio. And she insists that your physical well-being, your mental health and your creative spirit, if you will, have to be kept fueled. Mm-hmm. And so she suggested that um, I think she suggested I start doing art or or it was some connection anyway. Uh-huh. And so I took myself off to art class, which I'd always been told as a as a uh-huh. as a child, oh, don't be don't be silly, Ella. We're not painters, dear. We're not creative types. Well, hello. <laughs> and because the other thing is, so comedian, actor, writer, all of those things that I'm doing yeah. are income producing. So they stop being a hobby in a way. Uh-huh. Do you know? Yeah. So I needed to find something that I could do that wasn't income producing but would still give me some creative satisfaction. And painting became watercolour, became decoupage, has now become music video. Um, yeah, little, <laughs> there you go, your eyes just open. I'll show you one of them. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, I think that when you engage yourself creatively, that then fixes a bit of that problem because it allows you to then move on to the other thing, to the thing that you really want to do. It gets rid of the sadness, if you like. Mm. Do you know? Mm. Yeah, so you exploring your artistic side in a different medium. Yeah. Yeah. Next I have to learn to play and read music. That's, that's <laughs> oh, exciting. I would really love to do that. But yeah. Yeah, so, but it's, it's so completely removed from everything that I do. Uh-huh. Anyway, that's enough about me. But it was it was interesting that you raised that because yeah. I can totally understand. Yeah. I want to keep talking about that, but you mentioned something that I did not know about you, and that oh, is okay. that you had done some studying in Paris. Yes. So <laughs> what did you do there? So um, it was a Stanford study abroad program, and I lived with a host family, French host family, um, and who had triplets the same age as me, <gasps> like 10 days older than me. Oh. Oh. And um, I took classes at the Stanford Center, with, all of which were in French. And then I also took a class at the Sorbonne in American sociology. Mm-hmm. And then I had an internship at a French uh, film company. And I was there for eight months. And in the, in the summer, I moved into a little studio apartment on my own. And I had a grant from the Stanford Storytelling Project, which yes. is like a radio program right. uh, along the lines of This American Life. It's kind of the Stanford version of that. Oh, wow. um, and I got a grant to interview people who have um, the PACs, which is like a civil union. Yes. And it's just this interesting thing where the French government created the PACs 
for as a way to give same-sex couples rights yes. and like similar rights to married couples, mm-hmm. just like happened here. But they use language that let anyone get it, like any couple. Mm-hmm. So 95% of the people who got it were straight. So it's it was just this weird thing where, um, and while I was studying abroad, um, the gay marriage was legalized. And so it was this interesting thing where, um, you know, all these people who wanted, like chose to get a, could have gotten married. Like they were straight. There's no reason, no law against them getting married, chose to get this different modern new union. Yeah. Um, and so I interviewed couples who had the packs who were gay or straight. Um, and even someone who had been unpaxed. So basically divorced, but just with this, uh, civil union mm. about like the process of getting out, why they got in kind of like the romance behind it, like what it meant, you know, is it, what's the difference? Yeah. So basically it's a lot easier to get it and it's easier to end it. And, um, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> and it you know, it, it doesn't have the same like cultural or religious weight to it. Okay. Um, and in a lot of ways it's, it doesn't have the, you know, patriarchal weight of mm-hmm. marriage, um, and like history. Yeah. Pick me, uh, pick me. Yeah. But uh, most people got it out of convenience. So you could save money on taxes. You could, a lot of the people I met just because I was American looking for people to talk to, um, were international couples, right? right? Like, so it helped, it doesn't get you automatic citizenship, but it can help you get a visa mm-hmm. to have, to be packed to a French person. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, I did that, that radio project, um, that summer and it was, oh, it was so fun. Yeah. Had you, had you excited by it? I mean, the, the statistics are something like 75% Mm -hmm. of Americans don't have a passport. Your, your working life is such that you're, you don't get enough holidays to physically be able to travel overseas a lot. So, Mm -hmm. so people travel on their vacation to see family in other parts of the country or they road trip or whatever. So that must've been quite a thing for you to. Yeah. I, I had been to Europe as a kid Mm -hmm. and I have, you do have exceptional parents. I do. And I also have relatives in Europe Mm -hmm. still. Um, my mom's, um, aunt who's no longer alive. And then her, my mom's cousin and his kids, are all in London. Okay. So we saw them a couple times, like, and traveled as well. Um, and then my dad has some relatives in Germany. So I, but I had never been to France and I started studying French in school when I was 12. So it was <sighs> so exciting. And actually when I first got there, I didn't understand anyone because I had only heard French really in an American accent. Yes. Like, I had one teacher for, you know, 10 weeks who was truly French, but I was like, what is this accent? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's um, it. It's awful. You, I yeah, mean, I, I've so been fast. studying French since I was five uh-huh. and I went over when I was in my twenties and, um, and I couldn't understand anybody and nobody could understand me, but my teacher yeah. was from Numia, had been raised in France, but in the country. So she didn't have a Parisian accent. So, okay. you know, being yeah, in Paris, it's, it's a totally too. different thing. Yeah. So I was just walking around with my arms in the air going, <laughs> <"Ugh."> <laughs> you know? 
It's yeah. so much fun. Oh, that yeah. sounds exquisite. It, it was such an adventure to be, you know, a foreigner, to be te- uh, learning and speaking a different language. And mm. I really felt like everything, every little thing was an adventure when I was there. You know, like today I'm going to buy shampoo, you know, yep. and then you, you end up having all these interactions as you go there and, you know, um, cha- like random challenges along the way. And yeah, I really loved being in Paris and I haven't been back since, but did you journal while you were there? Oh, so much. <laughs> and you were, how long have you been journaling? Oh, a really long time. I have like off and on since I was like eight. Yeah. Yeah. So I, there's some, it's actually interesting because I have very vivid memories from childhood. Yeah. Pretty young. And, um, a lot of, I can describe, you know, the complicated feelings I had when I was 11 and I was kind of like, oh, um, I had some angst about like getting older and, you know, my, I knew my parents wanted me to stay young and I was kind of like, oh, I want to be cool. My socks are funny. You know, (laughs) like I had these, uh, these feelings like, oh, I'm having this pressure to be young, this pressure. Existential angst at 11. I love this. All sock related. also I had some existential angst around that age about um uh like well religion I was kind of like around then through like 14 when I was kind of having a lot of thoughts about religion and how it's been used to you know manipulate people Mm -hmm. and kill you know hurt people used for bad and as a force in the world you know sometimes um and I was seeing that in like all of history. And anyway, I never had more angst than I did as a child, but, um, and teenager. You're but... so lucky you got it out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. Yeah. Went hard, but, um, yeah, I re- remember these things and sometimes I'll say something and someone's like, you didn't feel like that at 11. I'm like, I did. I a hundred percent did. Um, and it's in this way where I'm kind of like, wait, have I been, you know, a grown up in my head, you know, or like as smart as I am now then. Yes. And, um, but then when I'll like read a journal entry, I'm like, okay, well, obviously my writing skills have improved, <laughs> you know, cause I, I like remember having those feelings, yeah. but when I read the evidence, I'm like, oh, I really didn't capture it, you know, yeah. well, because so that took a little longer. So much of our memories, are. Uh, image-based. Yes. We have an yeah. um, image in our mind's eye and it's either from the memory itself or derived from a photograph. Yeah. So we'll see a photograph in an album and that will take us back to that particular Christmas or that particular yeah. vacation and then those experiences kind of extrapolate from that. But to have those journals, I couldn't keep mine. Oh. I couldn't look at them oh. because my writing was always it was a dark and stormy night kind of thing, you know, so it was awful. (laughs) And I've only just got the, uh, really, well, not just, um, because I've been working on that screenplay. Yes. Um, But understanding that writing is editing, that you write and then you write and then you write some more and then you write again and then you keep writing (laughs) instead of, like with my one-woman show that I'm writing at the moment, um, I, I... I had these fabulous ideas in my head and it was like they were all covered in glitter and bows and and they went on the paper and they were just sludge. Uh And instead of going, oh, I can't do this, I just kept going, kept going, kept going. And now, you know, I'm polishing them a little bit and it will take more. So 
I really appreciate that you had the kernel of something when you were eight <laughs> and started journaling where you can actually look at your writing now and see that. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. That'll be a great story when you when you <laughs> when you've won everything, the Emmys, the Golden Globes, the Oscars, oh, the everything. Nice. Um, it'll be great to go back to those. And have you got have you got yeah. ideas from when you were younger for films, or are they current ones? Yeah, current, but sometimes I'll have projects I'll you know work on. I've worked on in the past and then we'll be like, oh, now I'm ready to like truly write this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Or do you mean yeah. more like stories about childhood? No, no, no. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I mean, I've got, I've got a space. I use the program Scrivener mm-hmm. um, and Scrivener allows you to, I used to write in pages or word yeah. and you just wind up with this incredibly long, piece of paper really um and if you think oh where did I write about that you have to search for it and so on Uh Scrivener allows me to write and even when I'm I'm starting on a on tv or film I'll write it as a novel Mm -hmm. so I can break it down into chapters and then it has places where you can write notes and Mm -hmm. so I've got a little place on Scrivener where I write my ideas Mm -hmm. the ideas that sound great in one sentence which is great for Uh a, a one line but there's nothing else to them. So you, they're, oh. they're never ever going to be anything. Uh-huh. But then you go back to them and go, hang on, actually, if I, yeah, if I did that. Do you, have, do you have a box of tricks like that? Do you have a notebook or a place on your computer where you store your ideas? I don't feel that I'm as organized about it, but I definitely write down a lot of, you know, kernels of ideas yeah. and some are on my computer, some are in notebooks. It's not somewhere on my phone it's not terribly I'm organized. a Virgo oh. I'm just such a Virgo. <laughs> um yeah I've heard that's nice <laughs> <laughs> not really you have to keep fighting the urge to put things in boxes um yeah but you know luckily everything on your computer is searchable so yeah you can find things um yeah and I do um as far as like writing routines go I write at least 15 minutes every day mm-hmm. um so that is like, even if I'm feeling super uninspired and I'm really tired and it's, you know, I'm ready to go to sleep, I can do 15 minutes before I fall asleep. Yeah. Um, and if I'm working on a specific project, I'll work on that. And if I'm not, I'll just do, you know, type a brainstorm list of mm. ideas or thoughts that are coming, but not journaling. It, you know, journaling mm. does not count. Is that right? Exactly. Minutes. Yes. You understand the rules. Yeah. This is Take Fountain with Ella James. Um, the journaling is separate from the writing. Do you have one project that you're working on at a time or can you switch between several? I can switch, but I try to concentrate on one, you know. So um, so one of the main things that I work on writing it are my TV samples, so mm-hmm. pilot, pilot scripts. And um, I have four currently. And, um, I have many of them I've rewritten so many times and like actually two of them I wrote last year and then have, you know, revised them as time has gone on. And, um, 
So those would like overlap. So when one was new, you know, I really concentrate on writing that, but then I went back to a previous one, kind of like revised it and then went back to this and revised. So just like switching between uh, whenever you feel you can be most productive. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a hero? Do you have somebody that you really admire or several people that you really admire in the business? Let's see. Um, well, I, f I feel like so many people would say this recently, but I really adore Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Oh, <laughs> speak to me. But she's my hero. Yeah, she's So amazing. my show is what I call Old Fleabag. Oh. Yeah, I just it. dig her, you know. Yeah. Um, and for those listening who haven't got into, um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge wrote Fleabag as uh, a play that she put on at uh, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Mm -hmm. And now it's a two-season TV series, um, oh, The Priest. Mm -hmm. um, and then she wrote Killing Eve, or the first season of Killing Eve, mm -hmm. and now she's writing the Bond film. Yeah, amazing. And yeah. she also wrote um, a show on crash, Crashing on yes. Netflix. Yes. Which I love not crashing on HBO, yeah. crashing on Netflix. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think she's so just so talented, so funny. I love that Killing Eve is, you know, this dark drama that has all these comedic moments mm. and a lighthearted touch in between the... Yeah. The, I mean, it's brilliant writing. Yeah. That and, first season, the casting with Sandra Oh yeah. and um, Villanelle. Um, uh, Jodie Comer. Oh, how could I not remember? Um, who's just extraordinary. Yeah. But the, the direction, the editing, the lighting, the costumes, I mean, everything, it just ticked all the boxes, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And all her shows are so different and mm -hmm. she's very um, efficient. She's done so much. You know, a lot of these are mm. only the past couple of years. Um, I think and, she's... Yeah, she's, so clever. And it feels like, like Fleabag, I feel that it's so unique. You know, I've seen movie, I've seen shows that maybe part of it reminds you of it and, you know, it breaks the fourth wall, which we've seen mm. done before, but it was mm. in a different way. And it was even in a different way from the first season to the second season. Yeah. It just grew and it has this like aliveness to it. I just really love well, writing. My favorite words and concepts living here are unique and authentic. Uh-huh. And, and it strikes me that for some of us in some parts of our lives, we keep trying to be something we're not. Mm -hmm. We keep trying to be what other people think we should be. Sure. Through not knowing what we want, we feel compelled to find a narrative that isn't maybe right for us. Mm -hmm. And the thing that makes Phoebe Waller-Bridge so fantastic is that she is both unique and authentic. Mm -hmm. And she has followed that yeah. to create that stuff. Yeah, and. And in an industry that, you know, you're up against so much competition to create something. Because on the one hand, you've got to satisfy what the networks want. But on the other hand, you've got to create something like Russian Doll, for example, mm -hmm. um, the Natasha Leon show. Course, yeah. So unique, so different. But she was working on that for years. Yeah. That's the other thing. I mean, the run-up the run yeah, can definitely. be 10 whatever years. Yeah. And that's actually one thing um, some you know, professional writers who I work with on the sitcoms I've been on, um, have, you know, watched like the wedding scene, my second film, which you're also in and um, as a cougar. Yes. Yeah, thank so you. wonderful at it too. <laughs> I don't know where I get it from. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, 
you know, they've watched that and then said to me, like, I never, I've never made a movie. Like, Savannah, I've never made a movie. This is amazing. And I'm like, yeah, but you've been a paid writer for 15 years, you know, like, that's amazing. And, but there is that, like, I got to make something that's so purely what I wanted to make and how I wanted it to be. And there, you know, I didn't, there's some collaborative parts of it where you're, you make certain uh, sacrifice based on, you know, how much money you have, what mm-hmm. other uh, other people's opinions are, how things play out. But um, ultimately you get so much creative control and that is like really beautiful. And I am happy to have that, you know, early, early on in my year. Yeah. And it could be something that like, I understand why people make, you know, very indie movies, you know, even when they are established. Yes. Because it gives them a freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Because most of the stuff that we do here in Hollywood is being told what to do by other people. Yeah, definitely. You know, you can have an idea, but I mean, in acting, you know, it's, it's all there on the page. You bring yourself to it. That's why they've cast you, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's the, 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 the work that you do on preparing the character, the backstory, knowing what's happened before, whether it's for one line or the whole season, mm-hmm. um, you're working with the director and the writer to bring that to life. You're not um, you're not creating something yourself, mm-hmm. which is but you it, are creating so much. And I mean, as you know from both movies, I'm very uh, fascinated by the actor experience, and I do like really admire when you guys bring these backstories and think about things more than the writer has often and, you know, make, bring yourself into it to like truly embody and make it authentic and Mm. unique. Um, Well, the thing, I mean, the thing about the role that I played is that a cougar doesn't think she's a cougar. Mm -hmm. A cougar just thinks she's out there dating men who just happen to be Young. Right, but your character is an actor playing a cougar. That so well, she's and that was the ne- Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. But right. Yeah. So, but it had to start at the base right. because the actor playing the cougar yeah. had to do the backstory yeah. on who she was, yeah. because there were distinct changes. Yeah, and I, oh, I don't think I said the premise of the wedding scene um, on this. No, that's a, that's no. Okay, so say it. Yeah. Okay. So the wedding scene is set behind the scenes of an indie movie on the day that they're filming a wedding scene, and the the actors start getting cold feet on behalf of their characters, starting with the bride played by Amy Argyle, um, and they start, you know, really doubting the narrative purpose of mm. this wedding and um, have to like figure out how to you know, speak now or have forever hold their peace for this wedding that never should have been written. And it's really about, um, stereotypes. So, uh, you know, the, the bride doesn't want to play this kind of generic femme fatale character and the groom doesn't want to play this, you know, trigger happy protagonist who keeps his feelings inside to like quote the exact movie. Um, and you know, your character doesn't want to play this, mother of the groom with like arm candy um and everyone kind of has and I really wrote that out of thinking you know a lot from my friendship with Amy but then also from my own experience writing and seeing things get cast and seeing 
um, stereotypes kind of happen before your eyes when you don't want them to. Mm. And realizing so many people are kind of complicit in creating these stereotypes on TV. And like, you can't blame the actor. Like she's doing a job, you know, but, um, you know, she might be having these doubts about the character and thinking like, I want to play, um, I don't want to play this character who's reinforcing certain gender norms. I want to play someone, you know, more stronger. I want to play someone more nuanced and vulnerable, you know, and really, feeling like I wanted to make this statement about how stereotypes become. Yeah. Like, the internalized misogyny yes. that isn't recognized, the implicit bias that isn't seen. Yes. It's so and subconscious. Also, and also just the, also, I mean, the dark comedy, I guess, of being cast in these roles you don't want to play, mm. you know, and, and in a speak way, to me, you should yes. see what, a, and, yes. And in bo- having to like, for example, art who, Art Napion Tech play, played your um, your date, whose name is just Hot Date, and he didn't get the script in the fictional movie within a movie. You know, yep. he didn't get the script because he doesn't have any lines, and yep. he's like sick of playing just a hot guy and being cast for his abs and his body, and like not getting like a complex character and not even getting to say words, and you know, like he's sick of that. But then he also knows that is the part he's playing. Yes. So when given a chance to, you know, spoiler alert, like get a bigger part, he, he goes for he it. He goes for it within that character who's been asked to play. So, um, yeah, it's I, wonderful. I admire the struggle. <laughs> um, so the the wedding scene uh, is going to be available for people to see. There'll be a link when, when it is. Yes, it's going to be put into yes. the podcast notes. Excellent. And you've got another project that you're working on at the moment. Can you tell us anything about that at all? Sure. So this is uh, in pretty early stages, but it's um, I wrote this pilot script, and it's actually the first pilot I ever wrote. I wrote it in college in a Word document. I didn't even have screenwriting software. And it, it was like an idea I got in a dream. And it's about these teenagers who get expelled from high school and sent back in time to an 1800s boarding school, mm-hmm. like a boarding school in the 1800s, because, um, you know, the present day authorities think, you know, this will really knock them into shape to make them force them to like be in this um, backwards old fashioned time. And they don't really know if they've really time traveled or if they're in like a present day, like reform school, Mm -hmm. you know, immersion. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I hope that made sense. Yes, it did. Very wacky. Um, But so I had written a version of this in college. And then maybe a, a little over a year ago, I was thinking about that idea. And I was like, I still love that idea. And I should rewrite it and make it like even more comedic. Because when I first wrote it, it, it had jokes. It was comedic, but I saw it more as like a drama, like a teen drama mm. thing. And I was like, this is such a weird idea. It should be like an absurdist comedy. So I rewrote it like that. And it's been something where uh, it's pretty out there. So a lot of people who have read it have had, you know, strong opinions on it. And a lot of people have really liked it. And some people have not. But um, 
a lot of people suggest other things like what if you made this into a movie like what if you made this into <laughs> I love you know, the like what that. ifs yes what if course. you turn the rabbit into a bear but <sighs> uh my friend Greg Portalon had this great what up what if when he read it which was what if we made this into an audio drama podcast <gasps> um and I that idea made me very excited because um I think so, people have to, often have to wait a long time into their career to sell their own show and get to write multiple episodes of a show but here is a way that I can write multiple episodes you know like really tell a complete serialized well this story. is how homecoming started yeah on yeah it, media it is something that is out there now like these mm. kind of old-fashioned radio dramas but in the present podcast form mm. so um and then also we don't have to worry about you know, filming a period drama because it's all audio and um, I'm really excited to like That's work fantastic. With, you know, another like act getting to work Please with. Please cast Yes, yes. yes. Thank of course. You. Of course. <laughs> um, just the act, like working with actors and kind of getting to have this exciting process yeah. and bring it to life and just worry about the audio. Oh, so yeah, yeah right. I mean, that's my, yeah. that was my old world. So yes. I totally get that. I was on an. I was on a. One of my first jobs was a serial in Australia called the Castle Ray Line, uh-huh. and uh, and it was a. It was one of the longest running. There were two Blue oh. Hills and the Castle Ray Line. So, That's and so I worked cool. in a in a. I learned to read from the papers and drop them on the floor so you can't hear them. And yeah, I mean Ooh. it was the real deal. You have to come train. The oh yes, actors. all of that. And we had the sound effect box, uh-huh. you know, with the, the squeaky door and the lock and the key and yes. all of those things. Oh, oh so, so much cool. fun. Oh, yeah. Savannah, I can't wait to see where you go next. Oh, thank you. You, you know, Same and you. Oh, thank you. But really, it's just such a, a delight knowing you. And uh, I just oh. thank you for coming on the program. Absolutely. So nice. Really fun to talk to you. You've been listening to Take Fountain with Ella James. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast at iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.